This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Packman Show, a TED Talk from Nigel Cameron, Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp, a Progressive Faith Sermon with Dr. Roger Ray, and a TED Talk from Barry Schwartz. All right, let's talk a little bit about technology. We've been talking many conversations about technology and jobs. We've talked about autonomous vehicles and the impact that they likely will have on transportation jobs going forward. There's a really interesting article from Wendell Wallach, who's an ethicist and also a scholar at uh, Yale University, who said, we have reached a tipping point for technology where technology is now destroying more jobs than it creates. There was a point where on the in net net new technology was still creating jobs by creating more industry and creating new opportunities and and so on and so forth and Wendell Wallach says now the combination of robots and 3D printing and autonomous technologies and so much else is now going to fuel technological unemployment here's a quote This is an unparalleled situation and one that I think could actually lead to all sorts of disruptions once the public starts to catch on that we're truly in the midst of technological unemployment. Some 47% of current jobs could be computerized in the next 10 to 20 years, according to an Oxford University study. I'm reminded of that that quote, and I don't know offhand who it, it originally came from. In capitalism, every human is either a capitalist somebody else's capital or economically worthless. We can't have a system where we laud the free market capitalism that so many love and at the same time want to take a completely anti-free market approach to preventing technology from advancing merely to keep jobs. And what we're really talking about here is a transition to something called a post-scarcity economy. This will take time. It should completely resolve abject poverty and hunger, but it likely won't, Lewis. It will likely lead, if we don't change our tune now and start thinking about this, to an even greater wealth gap. Uh, Yeah, in in a perfect world, uh, what you're suggesting is that the technology would do the work for us. The technology would provide what we need. And people wouldn't need to, you know, we wouldn't need uh, wage slaves anymore, right? The idea would be that this could disconnect us from that tired old cycle of work for money, money to live, live to work, work for money, money to live, live to work. We should be able to disconnect from that as this continues to happen. Unfortunately, I feel like our sort of weird stratification between capricious protectionism of certain industries combined with a broad amorphous free market ideology is not going to lead to that and this is a much bigger topic and i'm really interested in actually talking to some ethicists and futurists about this and we will definitely do that on the show
I'd like to ask us a fundamental question this afternoon. Perhaps the most fundamental question which the human race confronts in the 21st century. The most fundamental question. Will this be the century which is best known, which is marked, which is overshadowed by the triumph of technology? Or will it be the century which is marked by the triumph of humanity? Will we be able to frame these extraordinary developments in technology in such a way that they enhance, engage the flourishing of the human race? That seems to me the question of the 21st century. In fact, one could argue that it is the question of human history. Because for our, throughout our history, we have been striving toiling, working, laboring to create tools, homo sapiens, wise man. The name of our species is also homo faber, the man who makes things, humanity who creates tools to enable us to do our work. And we can see the history of the human race as a history in which we are able to accomplish more and more and more through the leveraging of our human efforts by hand, by brain, using tools. And this 21st century, in the extraordinary experience of which we find ourselves, our generation, is the century in which there is no question that these tools will become very rapidly faster and faster, more pervasive, more enabling, more powerful, more open to abuse, more open to enabling the flourishing of our human species. So that seems to me to be the question we face this year and in each year of the 21st century. Now, the most evident way in which these technologies are beginning to affect us is a way which is very troubling, which could also be very hopeful. And I want to take you on to a journey into a future which I believe may not be beyond the lives of many in this room, in which we have a world without work in which our tools have been developed so well that they do all of our work for us, in which artificial intelligence, robotics, has taken the load of human toil off the shoulders of the human species. And essentially, work, labor for money, which we have been schooled into believing is what we must do. Since we were hunter-gatherers and worked in this random way, we've moved toward an industrial society for which we are educated, for which we are prepared, in which we labor to pay our way. We face a future. I do not know how far ahead. I do not know how likely, but I think it is a significant possibility, and it's a significant possibility in our lifetimes in which work is no more. How do we frame this future? Is this a future which takes us to heaven on earth, in which we need not work? Or is it a future which takes us to hell on earth, in which we cannot work? I believe this to be a question which we should be taking far more seriously than we have been. Whether we as individuals, in our families, in our professional groups, in our societies, or whether we as those who influence governments and labor unions and investment policies and flows of capital, in the global order. 
Because I think this is a question which is certainly as serious as things like the climate question. Certainly as serious as things like the possible end of antibiotics. These are huge risk questions confronting the human community. We have to address them. Now, to reassure some of you and to worry others, these are not just questions coming from the radical left who maybe are most critical of technology. Not questions coming from Luddites. Some of you will know the name of Ned Ludd. Britain, my former country, I now live in America, but Britain had the first industrial revolution. And gangs of men went around smashing equipment because they believed it would destroy their jobs. And of course they were right. And they were led by a man called Ned Ludd. So Luddism is the name we given for smashing the technology because it will destroy jobs. Now I'm not coming here to play the part of Ned Ludd. What is interesting and this is really very new, in the last two or three years, we now see mainstream, centrist, responsible, boringly respectable people beginning to raise this question. So, for example, two MIT economists have published two books in the last three or four years raising these questions and seeing major losses of work because of robotics. The Financial Times had an article, London's boring financial newspaper, on this very question. A few months ago, perhaps the most comprehensive discussion, Oxford University has a centre called the Martin Institute. It's its futurist centre and includes, you know, transhumanists and all sorts of enthusiasts for the future. These are not in any way Luddites. They produce a fascinating report which argues that 47% of jobs in America in 20 years' time are likely to go. Now, of course, interesting number 47%, Brazil is 47% of the landmass of Latin America. You all know the map of your country. Imagine that landmass removed. It's almost half the jobs in the U.S. economy. They analyzed 702 different jobs. A detailed examination. That's what they think. Now, for example, look at the companies. Just the samples of what's going on. I mean, the last... Look at the news the last two or three weeks. WhatsApp bought by Facebook for $19 billion. Do you know how many employees WhatsApp has? It has 55. $19 billion in capital, 55 people with jobs. Huge value. Or to take perhaps an even more striking example, which connects us directly to the old economy, Instagram versus Kodak. Kodak, for two generations, dominated global photography. At its height, it had 145,000 employees in the company itself, plus all the distributors and photo shops. Instagram, there's some dispute as to exactly how many members of staff it has. It's around 11. I, I could not make this up. <laughs> you can Google it while we are speaking. New kinds of value delivered in ways that involve hardly any human labor. So what I'm arguing is that we have a prospect here in which you are essentially removing the human factor, the labor factor, from the value equation. Capital, technology, deliver value. Humans are increasingly unnecessary. And you know the technologies which we're discussing. I have three quick examples to stick this in your head. 
Google cars, the G cars, California now is allowing these cars 500,000 miles driven, not one accident caused by the car. Two accidents caused because the human driver got worried and took it over. Again, I'm not making that up. Far safer. Wired magazine recently argued this technology may begin with trucks. Because trucks, the cost base is far higher, they're much more dangerous, this is a far safer way to drive. You know the Google cars, they have this thing spinning on the top. It spins ten times a second, every second it absorbs more than a million data points. This is very sophisticated. Far safer. I don't know how many truck drivers there are in Brazil. In the United States, there are 5.3 million truck driving jobs. Ten years' time, 15 years' time, I suspect there will be zero truck driving jobs. I've actually tried to interest the uh, U.S. labor unions, AFL-CIO, in having this conversation. I drew them into a conference which we had recently. They don't seem particularly worried. I said, you know, the Teamsters may end up, the big truck drivers' union, with no members. They didn't seem particularly worried. People, people think that the future will be so like the present. That's why the future is so risky. Second example, of course, uh, we have um, IBM Watson. You know, IBM's supercomputer, which won Jeopardy, which made it the very famous, most famous computer in the world. They're now using IBM Watson for medical diagnosis. Diagnosis is what family doctors do. It's the main thing they do. They don't do it very well. Will there be family doctors seeing patients in 15 years' time when you can have a supercomputer and you can have a nurse or you can have a terminal taking your symptoms? Third example, of course, MOOCs. MOOCs, M-O-O-C, massive open online courses, these huge AI-based courses, which Stanford, MIT, are offering experimenting with these courses, in which the key thing is there's zero marginal cost. So, basically, you can have ten students in a class, or you can have a million students in a class. It doesn't cost any more. And one of our top experts on innovation has said he reckons in ten years' time, 90% of American colleges may have closed. I think maybe he's pushing it a bit, but those are the dimensions. Incredible opportunities for global education in parts of the world where you will never get the kind of capital to establish major universities we have in the West. But... Not a lot of opportunities for people with PhDs. So, now the standard answer, of course, which some of you are already giving as you get crossed with me, the standard answer to this argument is, but people like you have always been wrong in the past. The first Industrial Revolution, Industrial Revolution since, every wave of invention, innovation, destroys large numbers of jobs and creates even more and creates far more wealth. It'll happen again. Well, I have to say, I regard that as industrial revolution fundamentalism. The notion it worked then, it worked, it'll always work, that is a very dangerous way to think. Two reasons. First of all, the pace of change. Moore's law, exponential curves, is getting pretty steep. Ray Kurzweil was being quoted earlier. Genius of a man who believes the singularity will come in 2045 or something when the robot intelligence becomes smarter than us and takes over. I think he's wrong. But this guy is now head of engineering for Google. This is moving very fast. Now, secondly, um, we had this discussion recently at my think tank, and uh, we had leading it off a man called Marshall Brain, who is a computer scientist who began a famous website, How Stuff Works, 
one of the early, very successful websites, which he sold years ago. Marshall Brain said, the problem with this argument is that, of course, this new revolution in technology will create a whole lot of new jobs. But who will do these jobs? Machines will do these jobs. That's the whole point. So, you know, Isaac Asimov, you know, had these famous three laws of robotics, or four, because he stuck one on the beginning and called it zero, which are basically all about robots being nice to people. They shouldn't harm people. It's a wonderfully marvellous, liberal, sort of woozy idea. Of course, we have drone robots going around killing people. Somehow or other, Asimov, you know, his view has not been built into our technologies. But the point is, he did not add another law which said a robot will never take a job from a man or a woman who needs it. That is the question. So, how do we put these pieces together? I began by saying... This is the greatest question of our century. How do we frame this question? Is technology essentially tools to serve the human race, our humanity? Or ultimately, is technology the point? Are we meant to conform to technology? Is technology going to win? Is a technological model of what it means to be alive, to be thinking, to be active, is that really where we want to go? Are we basically just rather poor robots? We're rather poor computers. You want to get out of the wetware and just into the software and the hardware of this new world. Well, it seems to me we invent the wheel. That's a tool. We invent the ads. Of course, in this country where you have primitive tribes still using very basic technology side by side with a highly advanced economy, you see this very clearly. These are just tools. We must frame them as tools. Tools to be used in the interests of the human community. It's how we frame these things. The set, the context we place around them. The way we understand what it is that they're for. Now, as we begin to conclude, I have three, three questions to leave you with. One seems to me to be really very, very evident. That is to say, we're talking here about highly advanced technologies, about how we will operate when we have robots doing almost all of our work. I mean, they won't be novelists and poets and so on, but, you know, they will try to be, but not, that's not my point. We will not all get jobs as novelists and poets. Almost all of our work is doable by smart, smart computing. Now, first question is, though, the existing technology we have. You know, we have these little smartphones, which, of course, are highly, highly powerful computers. We accidentally call them phones because occasionally we even use them as phones. Um, we have these things. Now, how are they integrated into our social lives? To what extent do they enhance our humanity? To what extent are they turning us into machines who walk around bumping into people typing and in the middle of a date people are pulling them out underneath the table in the bar. You know, you know how it happens. I see you in the corridors, you know. These are wonderful things and I use mine all the time. But how do we integrate them into our social purpose so they help the human race, so they are tools for us to use in order that we might flourish as human beings? It's a question for now. It's a question we should be much more worried about now. I think these tools are extraordinary. I wouldn't be here if I hadn't, hadn't been chatting with Anna on Twitter three or four years ago. We've been chatting over the years. These tools are extraordinary. We must integrate them into our social, personal lives. 
Second question. Plainly, this prospect of heaven or hell, of a world without work, is a future prospect. But of course, the future, you have to go to the future to make the decisions today and tomorrow. That's why this is so important. What are the impacts of this way of thinking? Even if it is just a 30% possibility in perhaps, you know, 40 years' time, however you do the calculation, the risk calculation there, as you do with climate, as you do with antibiotics, whatever the calculus is, how do we use that to affect decision-making now in the policy community, in the corporate community, in our NGOs, among our industrial... Now, who, how should these... Reflections influence decisions taken today at the policy level. I think there are profound implications. They're not least. We have an education system designed to turn us into industrial creatures. Creatures for Fordism, for the factory system. We've loosened it up a bit. We talk about STEM all the time now. It's the same idea. Training workers. Now, if when you get to be 22 and you leave college, you retire, what should you have been doing for the previous 17 years? Questions, of course, about income. Socialism says we should redistribute income. This isn't socialism. This is the good of the community from a completely different perspective. Income may have no direct relation to the work you do. Third question. This may be the most important question for you of the 21st century. We began with the question for the human race. Now the question for you. If you never had to work again. If tomorrow morning and the next morning and the next morning you got up and there was no labor involved and you could do essentially what you chose to do, what would you do? What would you do? I don't know how to say this, so I'm just going to say it. We're all going to be obsolete in about 10, maybe 20 years, because compared to robots, we're going to be slow, stupid lumps of flesh who demand antiquated things like paychecks and bathroom breaks and to feel appreciated now and again. But don't get mad at me, I'm just a messenger. And 10 years from now, even bad news messengers will be replaced by a robot named Deborah who goes... You're obsolete and we'll be firing you. But, you. but you should take pride in the fact that it took my sophisticated software nearly 17 minutes to learn and replicate everything you do for the company. So now you're thinking, Lee, how paranoid of you. The robots are going to replace us and enslave us. Replace? Yes, they are. Enslave? No, not for now. I mean, we would be the worst pets, all right? Imagine, imagine if you owned a dog that was like, I'm bored. Do I look fat in this? Do I? Do I? Be honest. But will ro robots take all of our jobs? That's happening um now, all right? For example, self-driving cars, trucks, and drones have already been developed. And many people think self-driving cars won't replace humans because they could make mistakes. But they only need to make fewer mistakes than humans, which is easy. 
Robot cars don't text while driving, don't go 90 in a 45, and don't swerve into a tree because a squirrel faked as if it was going to go into the road. The transportation industry is the number one employer in the United States, and robot drivers will take away millions of jobs. But you're not worried because you have a desk job. But typing and researching at a desk is perfect for a software bot. Even jobs like lawyer and doctor involve a great deal of researching and writing bland briefs and analysis that software can already do. And let's be honest, fewer will mourn the loss of human lawyers than will be upset the day we finally stamp out herpes. All right? No, no, no herpes? Now, now what am I going to do to keep the women at bay? Much of the stock market is actually now made up of robots who taught themselves how to trade, trading stocks with other robots who taught themselves how to trade, making billions of dollars for humans who taught themselves how to be giant assholes. <laughs> Interconnected doctor bots can learn from every other doctor bot on the planet instantaneously. Plus, doctor bots don't have any hands, so they'll never try to find your prostate when you're not even ready. <laughs> Even some types of news articles are now being written by bots. Point is, all of these jobs are going. Sure, some types of creative jobs will remain, but some robots can even create classical music and paintings that are indecipherable from human-made art. Yeah, but has a robot ever cut off its own ear and given it to a prostitute in a fit of existential anguish? Huh? Huh? Let's see Teddy Ruxpin do that. And then, and only then, will I call him an artist. So drivers, cashiers, baristas, waiters, paralegals, secretaries, builders, all gone. The only thing that will be safe is con artists. Good luck teaching a robot to come up with the bat crazy stuff that flows out of Pat Robertson's bigotry savant pie hole. If you ever hear a robot go, lesbians cause 9-11 and the homo Hindus want your babies, you run. You run far and you run fast. Look, the Great Depression had an unemployment rate of 25%. That's all it took. This will be far worse. But the robot takeovers would be a good thing if the benefits went to the workers rather than to the repulsively wealthy at the top of this machine. The rich elite cannot be the ones allowed to make these decisions. Just look at the work environment Amazon's Jeff Bezos has created. People working inside his massive warehouses have their every move monitored and are constantly harassed to go faster or be fired. In June of 2011 in Allentown, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, because Amazon refused to air condition the enormous warehouse, the temperature got to over 100 degrees and workers were collapsing left and right. Amazon's response? Ambulances and paramedics were stationed all day at the depot <laughs> rather than pay to put in air conditioners. Well done, Amazon. You should just place the bodies of expired workers around your warehouses to serve as a warning to other workers to keep their butts in gear. All right. If a couple of people die in pursuit of getting my nose hair trimmer, nipple clamps, and copy of the Purpose Driven Life to me three hours quicker, so be it. My nipples are unruly and my nose hairs will not cleave themselves. <laughs>
I'm not saying fight technology. I am saying we need to realize that doing something we hate all day just to survive is a laughable societal model. There is enough money and resources for everybody to be fed and housed. The savings in time and money that robots provide should be given to the people, the workers, you and me, rather than allowing turtle-headed psychopaths to amass an absurd level of wealth. But still get me the nose hair trimmer. I can hardly breathe. Why can't I just have a friend? It's a robot. It's what I want. Sweet and nice like shirts. I say I'm robotic, not neurotic. This what I want to listen to me. Always has time for a nice hot cup of tea. To get her going does just the For most of human history, poverty was caused by scarcity. There simply was not enough food, not enough drinkable water, not enough housing. There was not enough seats in classrooms for everyone to receive a quality education, to be comfortably housed, to be adequately fed. But the past half century has changed that. For the first time in human history, the world has more than enough to provide all these things for everyone. What we have now is not a lack of resources. What we have now is a lack of morality, a lack of will, a lack of basic common decency. Our poverty, especially in the United States, is created by those who both hoard wealth and who cling to power. By the mid-1990s, this fact was being broadly discussed among both economists and agricultural specialists. There was no longer a need to focus on how to produce more food. We are already more producing much more food than is being eaten, and in fact, more than could be eaten. We are subsidizing turning food into gasoline to find a way to get rid of it all while we're still surrounded by starvation. And when, arguably, there not only is not a shortage of gasoline, there is a glut of it. Thank you, Obama. I've been involved in poverty and hunger-related charities for most of my adult life. I've helped to be, uh, build fielding, feeding centers in rural Nicaragua, I've cooked for our local homeless, and still every week I'm on the serving line, feeding as many homeless and hungry people as I can find. But I know that charity is not the answer. Charity is not a solution to poverty. And I don't want to diminish charity in any way. I don't want to, I don't want to slide it. I sent a gift to Nicaragua this week because I still really believe in what the Rainbow Network is doing there. And I'll be back at Bill's Place on Thursday serving lunch again this week, as I am every Thursday. But I know that these gestures are symbolic. You don't have to, you never have to explain that to me. I get it. It's like trying to put out a forest fire with a squirt gun. The problem is not that food is not available. The problem is that most people can't buy it. 
They can't get into the economic flow of people who get a regular pension or paycheck that let them go to the marketplace and buy what they need to eat and take it home and cook it the way they should be able to. As Dorothy Day was fond of saying, the problem is our stinking, rotten system and our acceptance of it. Our ancient scriptures, our hymns, our cultural myths and stories all evolved in a context of food shortage so that they derived images of generosity, of sharing, of showing charitable concern for those less fortunate. But all of those tender-hearted, well-intended images are not accurate in the 21st century. They are not accurate descriptions or reactions to what is going on in the economy of the present moment. I've seen... uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol, maybe a hundred times. I have personally played the Ghost of Christmas Present three times on stage. I still cry every time Scrooge has his epiphany at the end. I have cried watching the Mr. Magoo version of the Christmas Carol. (laughs) But I'm telling you, charity is kind of a feel-good tipping in the face of the real problem. And the real problem is an economic system that keeps nearly half of the population locked into poverty when we have more than enough to take care of them. There are more empty, repossessed houses in the United States than there are homeless people. There are more empty houses than there are homeless people. There is more food going into the landfill every day than would be needed to feed every hungry person in the world. Our problem is not scarcity, unless what you mean by scarcity is a lack of conscience, a dearth, may I say, of giving a damn, that the system is so corrupt, and yet we have come to accept it as a necessity, that we forget to challenge it. There's been conversation around for the last 50 years about paying a basic wage, not a minimum wage, not food stamps, not public housing, but paying a basic wage to every living human being. And if you just did it in the United States, you pay a minimum wage that is livable to everyone, and then if you want a better life, you work, and you try to start jobs, and you try to be creative. And if we did that, and this is mind-boggling, and I'm not an economist, and I don't want to, I don't want to go too far chasing this rabbit into the woods, but what it costs to administer our public housing, our food stamp program, our, uh, uh, aid for mothers programs, if we simply took the bureaucratic costs out and paid everyone a basic wage, we would literally save money. Now, why wouldn't we do that? Because Americans are horrified of giving someone something for nothing. We are horrified by the concept. But where they've done it, like in Alaska, where there's been so much oil income in Alaska for years, that every Alaskan, whether you're a millionaire or a pauper, everyone gets a check every year. And it's not a a basic wage, but it's a couple of thousand dollars. And what they've discovered is that it multiplies in the economy, that you give everyone a couple of thousand dollars, and you give a poor person a couple of thousand dollars, they will not establish an offshore, uh, offshore savings 
account to invest it in. They will spend it, and they will spend it in local stores, and they will spend it in housing, they will spend it on trading a car, and it, it stimulates the economy. In American Indian uh, reservations, where their income has been large enough, they give a distribution to everyone, and they discover that it, it multiplies within the economy. It really makes a huge difference. A basic wage to all Americans would change everything. But somehow, we are suspicious. Now, is that a personal statement? I mean, if you, if you got a barely subsistent amount of income, would you not work? Or might you be brave enough to start your own business? to do something genuinely adventuresome. If, if we had health care for everyone, like every other civilized nation in the world, and if we had a basic income, wouldn't that inspire you to work rather than taking away your incentive? It would keep you from getting captured in a dead-end job doing the same thing over. Then you would have the courage to go to school. Then you would have the courage to create new economies. Today I'm going to talk about work. And the question I want to ask and answer is this. Why do we work? Why do we drag ourselves out of bed every morning instead of living our lives just filled with bouncing from one Ted-like adventure to another. You may be asking yourselves that very question. Now, I know, of course, we have to make a living, but nobody in this room thinks that that's the answer to the question, why do we work? For folks in this room, the work we do is challenging, it's engaging, it's stimulating, it's meaningful, and if we're lucky, it might even be important. So we wouldn't work if we didn't get paid, but that's not why we do what we do. And in general, I think we think that material rewards are a pretty bad reason for doing the work that we do. When we say of somebody that he's in it for the money, we are not just being descriptive. Now, I think this is totally obvious, but the very obviousness of it raises what is for me an incredibly profound question. Why is this is so obvious? Why is it? that for the overwhelming majority of people on the planet, the work they do has none of the characteristics that get us up and out of bed and off toward the office every morning. How is it that we allow the majority of people on the planet to do work that is monotonous, meaningless, and soul-deadening? Why is it that as capitalism developed, it created a mode of production of goods and services in which all the non-material satisfactions that might come from work were eliminated. Workers who do this kind of work, whether they do it in factories, in call centers, or in fulfillment warehouses, do it for pay. There is certainly no other earthly reason to do what they do except for pay. So the question is, why?
And here's the answer. The answer is technology. Now, I know, I know, yeah, 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 technology, automation, screws people, blah, blah. That's not what I mean. I'm not talking about the kind of technology that has enveloped our lives and that people come to TED to hear about. I'm not talking about the technology of things, profound though that is. I'm talking about another technology. I'm talking about the technology of ideas. I call it idea technology. How clever of me. <laughs> In addition to creating things, science creates ideas. Science creates ways of understanding. And in the social sciences, the ways of understanding that get created are ways of understanding ourselves, and they have an enormous influence on how we think, what we aspire to, and how we act. If you think your poverty is God's will, you pray. If you think your poverty is the result of your own, your own inadequacy, you, you shrink into, into despair. And if you think your poverty is the result of oppression and domination, then you rise up in revolt. Whether your response to poverty is resignation or revolution depends on how you understand the sources of your poverty. This is the role that ideas play in shaping our, us as, uh, as human beings, and this is why idea technology may be the most profoundly important technology that science gives us. And there's something special about idea technology that makes it different from the technology of things. With things, if the technology sucks, it just vanishes, right? Bad technology disappears. With ideas, false ideas about human beings will not go away if people believe that they're true. Because if people believe that they're true, they create ways of living and institutions that are consistent with these very false ideas. And that's how the Industrial Revolution created a factory system in which there was really nothing you could possibly get out of your day's work except for the pay at the end of the day. Because the father, one of the fathers of the Industrial Revolution, Adam Smith, was convinced that human beings were by their very natures lazy and wouldn't do anything unless you made it worth their while. And the way you made it worth their while was by incentivizing, by giving them rewards. That was the only reason anyone ever did anything. So we created a factory system consistent with that false view of human nature. But once that system of production was in place, there was really no other way for people to operate except in a way that was consistent with Adam Smith's vision. So the work example is merely an example of how false ideas can create a circumstance that ends up making them true. It is not true that you just can't get good help anymore. It is true that you can't get good help anymore when you give people work to do that is demeaning and soulless. And interestingly enough, Adam Smith, the same guy who gave us this incredible invention of uh, mass production and division of labor, understood this. He said of people who worked in assembly lines, of men who worked in assembly lines, he says, he generally becomes as stupid as it is possible for a human being to become. Now, notice the word here is become. He generally becomes as stupid as it is possible for a human being to become. Whether he intended it or not, what Adam Smith was telling us there is that the very shape of the institution within which people work 
creates people who are fitted to the demands of that institution and deprives people of the opportunity to derive the kinds of satisfactions from their work that we take for granted. The thing about science, natural science, is that we can spin fantastic theories about the cosmos and have complete confidence that the cosmos is completely indifferent to our theories. It's going to work the same damn way no matter what theories we have about the cosmos. But we do have to worry about the theories we have of human nature because human nature will be changed by the theories we have that are designed to explain and help us understand human beings. The distinguished anthropologist Clifford Geertz said uh, years ago that human beings are the unfinished animals. And what he meant by that was that it is only human nature to have a human nature that is very much the product of the society in which people live. That human nature, that is to say our human nature, is much more created than it is discovered. We design human nature by designing the institutions within which people live and work. And so you people, pretty much the closest I ever get to being with masters of the universe, you people should be asking yourself a question as you go back home to run your organization. Just what kind of human nature do you want to help design? If they say why, why, instead of that is human nature, why, why, do they do it that way? If they say why, why, instead of that is human nature, why, why, does they do it that way? Howard Zinn said, the rule of law does not do away with the unequal distribution of wealth and power, but reinforces that inequity with the authority of law. It allocates wealth and poverty in such complicated and indirect ways as to leave the victim bewildered. And you have to wonder about a lot of the people who vote for the most austere, horrible political candidates when they are living in poverty themselves. But they have been educated literally to loathe their own peer group and to blame themselves for being poor. And, you know, just advertising does this to us constantly. Like um, Coca-Cola is now investing in children's athletic events, which is to say that this epidemic of childhood obesity is not because they're poisoning your children. It's because you're bad parents and you don't make them exercise enough. I mean, it's a complete shifting of blame. And we have spent generations training the poor to believe that their poverty is their own fault. One of the smartest, most talented people that I know is on public assistance and has been off and on for 20 years. And this is a woman who can do carpentry and plumbing and electrical work. She can fix almost anything on cars. She can cook any form of game and manage to feed um the homeless and dispossessed kids on her street with food stamps and good wishes. But she can't break into the universe of employment. 
of having real insurance, of ever having a hope of retirement or home ownership. She's hardworking. She's talented. She has some health issues, some complicated family hurdles, but absolutely cannot break out of the cycle of poverty. And if she was only one person in that predicament, I'd solve it myself. I mean, I, I am so sympathetic with her situation that if that was a unique situation, I would personally make the sacrifices necessary to change it. But her situation is not a standalone circumstance. It is repeated over and over and over again. My phone rings every day with calls from people with very legitimate needs asking for assistance. I was awakened at 5.30 this morning. I got home about 1 a.m., and my phone rang at 5.30 with a woman asking if our church helps people pay their rent. And, you know, how desperate must you be to think that even if we were a huge church, that you hand out hundreds or thousands of dollars to total strangers on the telephone who just say they can't pay their rent. I mean, the whole system of what would be necessary in background checks and stuff to to operate that kind of thing. But at that level of desperation, uh, waking a preacher up at 5.30 on Sunday morning is the most rational thing going on in her universe. Yesterday, a woman called who had fled from a violent spouse. She was staying in a local cheap hotel, and she needed someone to help her stay there. And, you know, David, you and I went out and paid uh, for a hotel room for someone in very similar circumstances. But our local spouse abuse shelter is full and has a waiting list, literally months long. If we could quadruple the number of beds in our abuse shelter today, we could fill every bed by tonight. So should she subject herself and her children to violence and possibly murder, waiting for her turn to get safe shelter? I'm telling you, the system is dirty. It's rotten. It's stinking. It's not fit for human beings. And it isn't like Dorothy Day and Gandhi and Cesar Chavez and Martin Luther King and me just discovered this fact in the last 50 years. We have a biblical text before us today, and I know some of you had almost given up on me ever using a biblical passage again, but today we actually have a gospel lesson from the third chapter of Luke. And if if we were the kind of church that really was a slave to the lectionary, the Christian calendar, the cycle of, of readings, we you would know that today is the third Sunday of Advent. It's not something that we talk about a lot, but that's today. And on the third Sunday of Advent, There's always a reading about John the Baptist. And the rest of the world is trying to get in the Christmas spirit. But whatever smart persons put the lectionary together, they invite John the Baptist to every year's Christmas party. Just when everybody's wanting to get happy. Repent! You get the guy eating grasshoppers, wearing, you know, animal skins, standing at the punch bowl, glaring at you, you know. And who wants the prophet at any Christmas party? And yet every year, here he shows up again. This year we're in what's called year C, so our readings are from the Gospel of Luke. And this is the only year that you even get a suggestion of what John preached. It's the only year where he really gets a decent line. In the version of Luke as we have it today, there are these verses that that Bob read for us of a message that is an anti-empire message. There's nothing in what this little sermon that's quoted, there's nothing about 
a Messiah. There's nothing about dying for your sins. There's nothing about going to heaven or avoiding hell. It's much more down to earth. It's economics 101. It is practical theology. It's if you've got two coats and somebody doesn't have one, you give them one. If you're a soldier, you've got an actual job, and that job is not extorting money through false accusations and lies uh, about the people that you're supposed to be protecting. If you're a government official, you've got a job to do. Don't try to make yourself rich at the expense of others. Very, very practical advice against abuses of power. Now, I don't have any idea if these seven verses are a historical reflection of what John really stood for what he actually said, what he actually was about. But I like to think that it is. I like to think. There's no hard historical evidence either way. So, you know, scholars will disagree. But as it turns out, at this present moment, I have the only active microphone in the room. And so it turns out (laughs) that it pleases me to believe that this is an echo of John's real preaching, because it is consistent with how other historical religious reform movements began. If we if we have any sense of the genuine history of Moses or Buddha or Zoroaster or even the Maccabees or Jesus or Muhammad, Francis, maybe even Martin Luther, there was an opposition to the abuses of power and an advocacy for the poor. That is, it seems that almost every meaningful religious reform movement begins when someone manages to see through the stinking, rotten system and to advocate for the rights of the poor, the marginalized, the enslaved, the landless, the homeless, the poor, and say, look, you jerks, just because you've got the spears and the swords doesn't mean that you get to lock most of us into poverty and get fat yourself. If you've got more than enough to eat, you share your bread with someone who's going hungry. Now, no one could be much more cynical than I am about organized religion. Yet here I am. I'm the pastor of a church. I'm the voice on a religious podcast. I'm the image on a YouTube religion channel. And even though when someone on a plane next to me asks me what I do, I tell them that I teach philosophy. The truth is, when I get my W-2 form every year, it says that I'm a pastor. I am an ordained tax-exempt institution of organized religion, and yet what I hold on to is that I am not a part of the guilt-ridden, manipulative, self-serving purveyors of misinformation and magic. I want to lay claim to being a part of the history of the prophets who fought to free slaves, to liberate the oppressed, the guys that spoke up for the poor and demanded that people open their closets and send their extra shoes to Nicaragua, their coats and hats to Bill's place, and to vote in a way that brings the poor into the economy rather than keeping the laws and the banking rules in place that awards the few with great wealth and the many with endless generations of suffering. No one here is in realistic danger of hunger, but we are all in danger of being on the wrong side of history. If we don't work and sacrifice, and prophesy, and vote to actively seek to change the dirty, rotten system that leaves hundreds in danger of freezing to death this week right here in the Ozarks, while many of the rest of us argue over what we're going to watch on HBO. John said that the axe is already laid at the root, ready to throw the useless into the fire. 
He may have been guilty of overstatement. Without overstatement, there's not much preaching, really. But maybe it was pretty close to the truth. So Merry Christmas, y'all. We just heard clips featuring the David Pakman show on the tipping point between technology unlocking a net gain in new job paths headed towards technology causing a net loss in jobs. Nigel Cameron's TED Talk speculating about the possible futures of a world without work. Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight warned us about all of those robots angling for our jobs. Dr. Roger Ray's progressive faith sermon was split up into two parts in which he explores the paradigms of poverty and the need to rethink how to move beyond scarcity. And then spliced into the middle of Dr. Ray's sermon was Barry Schwartz's TED Talk about the malleability of human nature and our relationship to work, opening the door to the possibility that we can change the way we see ourselves and shape our culture. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Robert from New Hampshire again. I just finished listening to your episode about the shooting with Planned Parenthood, and I just wanted to bring up one particular issue that actually really gets me really, really angry when the uh, the right wing and or media uh, or politicians, for that matter, bring up concern about violence against women when they get abortions. I don't understand the kind of violence that they're talking about, and Truth be told, I want to disclose my own personal experience back 15, 16 years ago. I actually, when I was young and stupid, me and a uh, girl I was seeing at the time, uh, we actually, she actually got pregnant. Being my, uh, my mother's son, I left it up to her what she wanted to do with her body because that's what I believed in. She, if she wanted to keep the baby or get an abortion, she decided that she was not ready for for uh, such a responsibility. And uh, we went to a clinic, and the doctors and nurses were just so compassionate and discreet. And all of this rhetoric that the, uh, the right wing or the pro-lifers are just spouting is just it's it's irritating. It's it angers me so much that they talk about it like this because the girl I was seeing was not I mean it makes it makes it sound like they were like they they just beat her stomach with a stick or something like that you know and it's it's not like that at all if they only knew what the procedure and the process was they would maybe understand what the facts are and not just give in to all this like rhetoric so yeah that's that's all I had to say Uh, Thanks again. Keep up the good work, Jay. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay. It's Kyle from Cleveland. Just listened to the last episode. And uh, I have to take issue with what Will from Mississippi said about skilled labor. Anyone who's listened to the podcast for a while and the voicemails knows that I am a very proud union member. And I do, in fact instruct the apprenticeship here in Ohio for union labor. My problem is, I understand what he's saying. It sounds like an insult to say that jobs are unskilled. 
But I think what Will might be doing unwittingly is helping the race to the bottom happen. And let me explain. By saying that there is no such thing as unskilled labor, you're saying that skilled labor itself or a superior level of labor doesn't exist. This could not be any more false. As an example, let's look at construction, my field of expertise. With the union, we teach a lot of OSHA safety and regulations and building codes. Non-union workers who pretty much get kicked up in front of Home Depots, pulled off the streets or whatever, have no formal training. In the non-union states in the construction field, 52% more chance of being injured or killed at work as opposed to states that have unions and apprenticeships. By him saying that there is no such thing as unskilled labor, he is, in essence, saying that that stat doesn't exist or that there is no correlation to the fact that when you have a skilled apprenticeship craft, that you're not going to get a safer, more versed, and more functional workforce. I understand what he's saying. He doesn't want to make enemies by saying all those jobs are for peons, any moron could do it. I get that. But he's got to understand that his language is dangerous as well. All it's going to take is some asshole like Frank Lutz from the Republican Party, their wordsmith extraordinaire, to get a hold of a progressive like Will saying things that he can twist and contort and put a conservative positive meaning on. Anyway, that's all I got. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, I just want to back up one of the callers we heard from talking about what it's actually like to go through the abortion process, obviously based on his experience with his girlfriend. And it just so happens that I finally got around to seeing the film After Tiller. It follows around a handful of late-term abortion providers to see what their days are like, what their emotional state is like in the wake of the assassination of Dr. George Tiller, who at the time that he lived was one of the very few abortion providers left in the country. And this film does an amazing job of not really being an advocacy film. It doesn't focus on how awesome it is to be pro-choice. They don't focus on how evil it is to be anti-abortion. They just uh, follow the lives and stories of these abortion providers, see what their day is like, see how they got into the line of work they're in, see what some of the stories of their patients are. So you get a snapshot of a few of the reasons why people might go in to have a late-term abortion and it's just intensely complicated, which is kind of the point. No one necessarily needs to argue that the abortion discussion is black and white. The whole point of being pro-choice is sort of to recognize, hey, this is a complicated thing. Let everyone decide for themselves what they want to do. And so that that's clearly you know where the people in the film and probably the filmmakers themselves all come down on that question. But it's really good and refreshing to see it in that complicated light where 
the abortion providers themselves are grappling with the emotional complications of the work they're doing. So I definitely recommend After Tiller to anyone, regardless of where you come down on that discussion. I think I found it on Netflix, but you can probably find it elsewhere. Now, as long as I'm tossing out recommendations, uh, today was, I think, the second time you heard a clip from a new series I've come across called The Progressive Faith Sermon with Dr. Roger Ray. I didn't exactly just come across it. Dr. Ray is actually a listener of this show. He got in touch, wanted to touch base, and let me know that he has this series going. It's a podcast. It's a YouTube channel. And, uh, you know, he thought, hey, you might be interested in this. I checked it out. Turns out I was interested in it. And so it was, it was the last clip. It was the one split into two. And so, you know, if you got some faith in your life, but you could use a little bit more of a progressive bent on, uh, on the sermons you're hearing, you should definitely check this out. As a person with no faith in my life, I find his sermons, uh, you know, perfectly wonderful to listen to anyways. So, I just want to put that out there for anyone who may be interested. Google, iTunes, search wherever, uh, Progressive Faith Sermon, Dr. Roger Ray, any combination of that, you're probably going to come up with it. And, okay, now i got a question for you. Rather than giving all my own thoughts on this, I would love to hear from people if they have some reactions of their own, specifically to the clip today on how human nature is molded, how humans are sort of, you know, one of the only animals where their human nature, the way they act, is incredibly shaped by their circumstances. And you know, the, the speaker was focusing mostly on our circumstances at work, the concept that people become as dumb as their job requires them to be. Once I heard that clip, you know, probably a couple of months ago now, I have had this concept popping up in my mind in all kinds of contexts ever since. And, and basically... You know, it, I, I think that it goes far beyond our work circumstances. And so if you have thoughts on that, how a person's neighborhood where they grow up shapes how they are, the, the way people see one another affects the way people see themselves, and so on and so on. If you have any thoughts on that personally, politically, professionally, anything in that range, I would love to hear from you. Uh, the messages that come in, today and and beyond today are going to be held until after the holiday break. But I think that could uh, set us up for a fascinating conversation in the new year. Uh, So if you have any thoughts on that, the number again, 202-999-3991. I want to check in on our uh, ongoing fundraiser here at the end of the year. Uh, More people to thank. Jana, Richard, Randon, Yassert, and Jean all chipped in. And our countdown is down to only 15 signups remaining. We are in the final week, as I uh, always say, and is always the case when, uh, whenever pretty much anyone does a fundraiser for anything, there's always this big push right at the end. So I'm looking for a uh, winter holiday miracle here in the last week. I need 15 people to sign up at six bucks a month to reach our goal for the end of the year. Um, this is setting up the show on uh, excellent financial footing going forward for the for the coming year, and then I don't have to worry about it and beg for money so much, which I think everyone is going to love. 
So if you'd like to chip in, simply go to the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks very much to everyone who has already done that and for everyone who is going to do that and push us over our goal line here at the end of the year. And now finally, a production scheduling note here. Uh, today or somewhere thereabouts, few days before Christmas is usually the time when I say, all right, this is it. This is the last episode. I'm taking a break for the holidays. Not this year, though, because uh, the calendar worked out in such a way that I felt like it just made sense to have the last new episode of the year be on Christmas Day itself. We always have shows come out on Fridays. Christmas is on Friday. So I will have my annual War on Christmas episode that's going to come out on Christmas Day. For anyone who finds themselves in a circumstance where they wish they had a podcast to listen to, except all your favorite podcasts are on vacation, I got your back. There will be a brand new episode uh, Christmas morning for your stocking or uh, wherever you keep dreidels or whatever other holiday you may uh, enjoy. Uh, that's going to come out on Friday, and then I'm going to go on vacation between Christmas and New Year's, and so as I say uh, voicemails and conversation about fascinating things will recommence after the New Year's, and I'll put a couple of reruns out on the feed so you have at least something to listen to if you like, or maybe you missed them the first time around. Phew. All right. I think that's it. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course. Thanks to all those who have uh, become members or made donations throughout the years. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained